If you have a Bible, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7, and uh, if you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. We have one at the welcome desk, which is right out the back doors, and we would love for you to have that. Um, If you have a Bible, but it's it's been a long time since you've been in the book of Isaiah, you just kind of go right to the middle of the Bible and and, and go left a little bit, and there you'll find uh, the book of Isaiah, or if you want to skip all that and just go to the table of contents or Google it, that's fine too. There's no one uh, will judge you for that. Uh, this is the second week of our Advent series called Love Came Down, and maybe this idea of Advent is new to you. Maybe you've never even heard the word. Well, the word Advent comes from a Latin word that just means arrival or, or coming, and of course, in this context, we're talking about the arrival or the coming of Jesus. And that arrival, the birth of Jesus, what we call the incarnation, that that marks the, what we call the first advent. And the beautiful thing about the first advent, a lot of beautiful things about it, but it also prompts us to look forward and to consider the second advent, the return of Jesus that we, that we long for, that we, we plead with God to bring about. What do we pray? Even so, come Lord Jesus. And so the, the first advent causes us to think about the second advent and the whole season of advent really alerts us to something incredible that has happened. With the arrival of Jesus, the kingdom of God has crashed into, invaded our world, and since it has come, the kingdom that is, then we know that it will one day, very soon, in God's timing, be fully consummated. A Latvian theologian, John Bombaro, writes this, The first Sunday in Advent demarcates significant transition. Christians should sense that something momentous is afoot. Advent promises to bring us into that contemplative space that says we are one step closer to the coming of Christ. Fulfillment is at hand because the one who fills all things has come, comes, and will come again. Are you thinking in those terms this morning. Something momentous is afoot. Now, probably in your, your internal dialogue, you don't use the word afoot, uh, but still, are you thinking this way? Something incredible is on the very near horizon, and we know that because Christ has come. The first coming of Jesus, again, the reason for Christmas means that Jesus' second coming is not far off. And right now, We live in the in-between, the in-between period. The Bible calls that the last days. These are the last days. And so we think about what it means to live in tension. How how would you respond if I said to you, how would you describe the last days? Well, I think if we're honest, we say difficult, right? Hard, painful, filled with suffering and, and at times disappointment and stress and worry and fear and all of those things These are characteristics of living in the last days. I was talking to a man just the other day who uh, shared with me that his daughter and son-in-law were were going through a divorce, and this man, this big, strong man just sat there, and uh, and he he just wept, just literally wept. He could hardly get out what he was trying to say to me, and shortly after that conversation, I got an email saying that one of Capshaw's beloved missionaries, Nathan Graves, just was informed that his wife, Lorraine, has stage 4 cancer of the ovaries, liver, and stomach lining. Of course, the prognosis for that is not good. And then I read on Twitter that one of my favorite 
preachers and theologians uh, has announced that his stage four pancreatic cancer is sort of back with a vengeance and basically, I guess in kind of veiled language, saying goodbye to people. And then, you know, you wake up on Saturday morning and, and read about the tornadoes that leave hundreds of people uh, homeless and, and uh, removed from their comfortable surrounding and, and dozens of people even dead. And we just say, well, the hits just keep on coming, don't they? It seems like it's one difficult thing after another. And this is to say nothing of the problems we bring on ourselves from our own sinfulness and our own pride and our own rebellion against God's ways. And many of you are thinking, maybe this morning, you know, yeah, we're singing all these joyful songs and that's great, but really, this is a very difficult time for you. You're going through some hard stuff, conflict and unrest and physical and emotional and spiritual fatigue. As we talked about last week, right now, things are not right with the world. Yes, the coming of Jesus, the second advent, is, is, will be soon. But right now, at this very moment, all of creation, as we saw last week, is groaning. All of creation, including we ourselves, humanity, we live with the effects of sin. Now, what is creation longing for? Redemption, right? How will redemption come? Through the Redeemer. All this pain and disappointment and heartbreak and frustration, not meant to destroy us, but to actually intensify our longing for what's next and to drive us to a deeper trust, to cling ever more tightly to our Creator and our Redeemer, who again has something really good in store for us, for His children. So what do we do as we wait? How do we avoid spiraling downward into an emotional and spiritual abyss? How do we endure the suffering of right now? Well, that's what we're looking at this morning and really throughout this Advent series. Uh, last week I gave you the, the series outline. Let me just review it if you weren't here last week. So last week we looked at creation and chaos. This is kind of the, the story arc of the Bible, if you will. And we think that Christmas is kind of later on in the New Testament, but it all is really the thread of Christmas Last week, creation and chaos from Romans 8. Today, the promise of a coming one from Isaiah 7. Next week, the, the, the birth narrative. We'll look at the birth of Jesus from Luke 2. And then the day after Christmas on the 26th, the visitation. So living with tension and pain and frustration and all of those things, these aren't new problems, you know. These aren't new problems. This has been the case for God's people all along. Since the fall of our first parents, again, we touched on this last week, since the rebellion of Adam and Eve, we live with the pain and the suffering of this world. But God has always had an answer, a divine solution. So that brings us to Isaiah 7. And before I get to the text, let me just take a couple of minutes and give you a bit of a historical background. Because if I don't, I don't think you're going to make, it will make sense, some of the names and nations that we're reading about. Um, at the time of Isaiah 7, the time of this writing, the once glorious united monarchy, and you remember this, led by the likes of Solomon and David, that the once glorious united monarchy is now a thing of the past because of the stubbornness of one of Solomon's sons, Rehoboam, that led to an insurrection. And then, and then this great nation, this united monarchy of Israel is separated and it becomes Judah, two kingdoms, Judah in the south and Israel in the north, Israel sometimes called Ephraim. Uh, let me just show you what that looks like. You can, you can see on the map uh, behind me, the green is 
uh, Israel, and the blue is, is Judah. And the separation, the kingdom separation happened around 930 B.C., so not quite, but almost a thousand years before Christ came. And at the time of this writing that I'm just going to read in just a moment, Israel and Judah are really at odds with each other. They're kind of like two brothers, former brothers, who don't get along, and in some case, they even hate each other. They are, in every sense, a kingdom divided. And when Isaiah writes, the kingdom has been divided for about 200 years. Assyria, at this point, Assyria is fast becoming a global world power. Basically, Assyria is taking over the known world with with cruelty and and violence and savagery. And about six years into Isaiah's ministry, things would hit an all-time low. So around 734 B.C., Israel in the north would form an alliance with Syria to resist Assyria. I know it's a lot, and you got a lot of these old nations and names and but so, so Israel in the north forms an alliance with Syria to resist the behemoth Assyria as Assyria is advancing into and taking over the known world. And so what they do is they thought, well, we need some extra help. So they invite Judah, which is the, the southern kingdom, into an alliance to, to sort of withstand Assyria. They say to King Ahaz, who is the king of Judah, they say, you need to enter into a pact with us and we'll fight against Assyria. But King Ahaz, the king of Judah, wanted nothing to do with it. So just to give you an idea, I want you to imagine for a second that you're in junior high. Some of you are saying, no, that's the last, please no, anything but that. Um, And I get it, right? But imagine for a second you're in junior high, and there's a bully who's terrorizing the school. He's bigger and stronger and meaner than anybody else in the school. And then you find out as you're there in junior high, that your brother is now best friends with the bully. And they, they pull you aside, you know, after, uh, let's make it as, as bad as possible. So you're in the locker room and PE and everybody else is gone and you got the stench of all that. And they pull you aside and they say to you, you have to join with us. Now, what do you think are the consequences to saying no? It's not going to go well if you say to the, the school's biggest bully, And your own brother who's now with him, no, I don't want to be a part of this. But this is exactly what happens. Assyria is the bully, and Israel is your brother. And they come to to Ahaz, who's the king of Judah, and they say, you have to join with us. And then they, and of course, Judah, or King Ahaz of Judah says, no, I don't want anything to do with that. And then this alliance between Israel and Syria says, okay, okay, if you're not with us, then you're against us. And they mount an attack on Judah. So Rezin is the king of Syria. Pekah is the king of Israel. And they are advancing to destroy Judah. And King Ahaz hears about it. And he and all the people are scared to death. So with that historical background, let me read Isaiah 7. We'll, we'll, I'll start by reading the first seven verses. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah. So there's Ahaz, the king of Judah. Rezin, the king of Syria... And Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David, which is another way of saying Judah, when the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, sorry, but Ephraim is another name for Israel, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook 
as trees of the forest shake before the wind. So Ahaz and the people are scared to death. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Isaiah is the prophet, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jeshuv, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. So I want to pause there for just a moment. So again, Israel, Syria, united to come against Judah. Ahaz is the king of Judah, and they try to get him, Ahaz, to jump in with these other two, but Ahaz won't oblige them, so they let them know that they're going to attack him and his country. And being a very practical man, Ahaz is out at the upper pool, we're told in verse 3, inspecting the water supply to see if they can withstand such an attack. It's like when you read or you hear that there's a terrible storm coming, you start to take inventory, you check your you know, your doors and windows, you want to make sure, can we withstand these forces? Ahaz wants to see what he can do to resist this attack. He has no thought to pray, no thought to plead with God. Instead, he's taking inventory to see if he can stockpile enough resources to survive. But God, being a very merciful God, he wants to save Ahaz and Judah And so God sends Isaiah out to Ahaz and his son. We don't know how old Ahaz's son was at the time, um, but his name, Shear Jeshuv, is symbolic. It means a remnant shall return. So this is God's way of showing Ahaz that God's people will not be snuffed out. Even if this alliance were to overtake Judah, a remnant will return in victory. So God tells Isaiah, I want you to go find Ahaz. He's out at the water duct um, and tell him to be quiet. Tell him not to be afraid. Tell him not to panic. And tell him, do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps. In other words, God tells Isaiah to go tell Ahaz, don't worry for a second about these two burnt out cigarette butts. They are nothing, nothing compared to me. And they will not succeed. And I think, say, what does all this have to do with us in 2021? Well, I think Sometimes in our craziness and fear and, and stress, we need to be reminded of God's almighty power and God's deep concern for His own. He's, God is still in control, and I know you, you may be going through something, and, and maybe you, you're going through something that nobody else knows about. God is still in control, and He still cares, and He's still doing something. In Ahaz's situation, these kingdoms may be great, And these rulers may be fierce, and these armies may be way beyond in terms of power or numbers, what Ahaz could come up with, but they don't stand a chance against the sovereign Lord. And here's our first point this morning. Amid chaos, confusion, and the threat of defeat, God delights in showing Himself strong on behalf 
of his people. And I love this. I love it in the Old Testament when David is kind of at wit's end and, and he has nowhere else to go and nowhere to turn and he cries out to God like he does in Psalm 68. He says, God, show yourself strong. Show yourself strong. Will you show me? Will you make your splendor and your strength known so everybody around will fear you and worship you and those who belong to you can take comfort in your sovereign control? When's the last time you asked God, in the midst of your trials and suffering, God, show yourself strong on my behalf? It's inevitable that you and I will have crises in our lives, people who rally against us, situations that test our resolve, scenarios that seem, at least on the surface, impossible. What could I possibly do to remedy this scenario? But God's word to us is just the same as it was to Ahaz and has been throughout history. Don't be afraid. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't grow faint because of your adversaries. I am on your side. I will fight for you. And I will win. Perhaps what God wants us to do is, in our quietness, to plead with Him. God, will you show yourself strong? Now look at, look at verses 7 through 9. It shall not stand, the Lord, this says, thus says the Lord, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, this is God speaking through Isaiah, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramaliah. And then God says, if you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. Now, this is really interesting, and my son who's in seminary will sometimes call me and say, Dad, I just don't, I'm so tired of these languages, you know, Hebrew and Greek. Like, what's the point? Well, this is where, you know, knowing the languages can help a little bit. This is, this, what I just read, verses 7 through 9, is actually a six-line Hebrew poem, and it's pretty incredible, really, because there's a lot of there's a lot of word images, and, and only the it's it's a poem. So only the God of the universe has the moxie to communicate this devastating destruction in a poetic fashion. The language is colorful and it's rhythmic, and it tells of a horrific defeat to the nations of Syria and Israel. And in fact, all of this would happen within three years of this prophecy. Syria was crushed, and then 10 years later, Israel fell, and God tells Ahaz what is going to happen, and then he implores Ahaz to believe. Look at the last part of verse 9 again. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. The Hebrew reads, ta'amanu ta'amanu. It's a, it's, a, it's a play on words roughly translated, trust or bust. Now, if I were a cool uh, church planning pastor with campuses all over the world, I would say, look at your neighbor now and say, trust or bust, right? Um, but, that, but that's not who I am. So, um, but this is, the, it's, this is what the Hebrew says here, trust or bust. This will be Ahaz's defining moment. Will he trust in his own instincts, his own ability, his own insight, his own ability to figure this thing out, or will he trust in the provisions of the sovereign Lord? Simply put, God calls him to faith, which is what God calls each one of us to. Now, of course, that begs the question, doesn't it? What is faith? What does it mean to have faith? Scottish theologian John Murray defines faith as a whole-souled movement of intellect, consenting and confiding self-commitment, 
uh, or intelligent, consenting and confining self-commitment. In intellect, feeling, and will converge upon Christ. There is a consensus of all the functions of a man's heart. In other words, true faith, the faith that God requires, is not simply believing that God exists. The demons believe that God exists. A lot of people believe that God exists. This was never a problem with Ahaz. Of course he believed that God existed. True faith is demonstrated when we fully respond to God's invitation with our hearts, our minds, and our wills. It's not just about having a positive perspective on God. It's not about having nice feelings about God. It's not even about believing good things about God. Now, mine's not nearly as good as John Murray's. Uh, I would never claim that to be the case, but here's how I would define this faith as I consider it from Isaiah. True faith is trusting in God in such a way that our hearts despise our own wisdom and anything the world offers as a substitute for God. As we grasp of the Spirit's power, our complete need for God's provision, namely Christ, in such a way that it moves us to courageous and obedient action. Again, I'm not saying that's the best definition in the world, but there's the best I could come up with. Here's our second point this morning for taking notes. Life with God is a life of faith. And you say, well, yeah, that seems pretty simple. It's actually, I think, one of the deepest things we can contemplate. Life with God is the life of faith. Now, what does that mean? Well, there's two, there's two dimensions to this. The first dimension is this, is living on this broken, uneven planet, this sin-cursed planet. God doesn't tell us everything that's going to happen. He doesn't reveal everything to us. Now, He does reveal enough to us in His Word and by His Son. He reveals plenty to us about our world and about ourselves, about His salvation, about who He is, about what He's done to redeem the world, and so on. But he doesn't tell us everything. He leaves many, many questions unanswered. And living with faith means trusting God without all the answers. Well, we don't have the answers. A couple of years ago, I taught this three-hour class um, as part of an international study program called Perspectives. And I taught two places in, in, in the air. I taught in South Huntsville, and I also taught it over in Athens, so two different churches. And um, and it was great. It's a great class. If it comes around, something you might want to consider. But so I taught. I teach lesson four, and I, I taught lesson four in those two locations. And there was one young man there, twenty-three year old, twenty-four year old young man, who was at both classes, even though it's a, you know the same material. He was a, he was there in Athens. He was there in Huntsville. And he sat right in the front row, taking notes um, the whole time, and seemed fully engaged. And when I was at the end of one of them, I think it was the Huntsville class. I we were. This is a three-hour class. This is a lot of teaching, a lot of time for, to expect people to listen. And I said, hey, I've got to wrap this thing up. Um, my daughter works at, at DQ, and I want to see her before it closes and get my blizzard on, and so I've got to get this thing done here. And so I, and this guy sitting in the front row, this 23-year-old, he said, he raised his hand. I thought he had a question. He said, hey, do you mind if I join you? I was like, uh, sure, okay, that's fine. Uh, just meet me there. So he, had, he ended up meeting me there, and we had blizzards together, had a great conversation. And then at the end, he said, do you mind if I get your, your cell number? I said, of course. And he said, can I text you um, when I have questions about things, you know, the Bible or theology or life or God or whatever? And I said, sure. Here's my cell number, and, and you can text me whenever. I had no idea what I was getting into, frankly. But, um, and so I started getting regular texts from this guy. And this guy is super bright, recent college grad, and he's an, he's an engineer and, and very, very bright dude. He started questioning. And, and the questions I was getting... 
they almost all had something to do with this, seriously. How can I prevent blank from happening? How can I avoid blank? Like the last one I got just a couple of days ago, he said, he said, I'm terrified at marrying a young lady who's only a cultural Christian and not really trusting in Jesus. How can I avoid marrying a cultural Christian? Well, you know, it started out, I was re- responding with these really long texts, you know, multiple screens, and, and then they got shorter and shorter. Now when I get something from how can I avoid whatever, I just say, you can't, period, that's it. <laughs> um, that, that, I, I mean, 11 o'clock at night, 2 in the morning, I'm just like, you can't. You can't avoid it. You can't control everything. You cannot avoid bad things happening to you. You cannot um, make sure that everything goes the way you want. And I have to say this to myself. I can't control all the outcomes in my life. I can't prevent every bad thing from happening. When a friend of mine who's a pastor turned 40 a few years ago, he said, when I got into pastoral ministry, I thought, I'm going to change the world. The world is going to be a different place because of me. And then he said as he got older, he, he started to become smaller and smaller. I'm going to change my city. My city's going to be different. And then he said, I'm going to change my church. And then he said he got frustrated. I'm going to change my family. And then ultimately he said, I can't even change myself. What am I thinking? I can't change anything. I can't change the world. He had this idealism sort of running through his mind. We can't fix anything. We can't prevent every bad thing from happening. We can't control the circumstances around us. We have no idea what's going to happen to us in the next few minutes, let alone the next hours, days, and years. Our only option, trust God and live by faith. And so that's one dimension of this, living the life of God as a life of faith. Um, But the second dimension is this realization, that the heart of the Christian life is not so much about our activity, our doing, what we can do, but actually believing in, trusting in what's already been done. See, the struggle that we face as Christians is not primarily the struggle to do, although, yeah, that's a struggle. We don't do the things we want to do, we do the things we don't want to do, but that's not the primary struggle. The first, it's first a struggle to believe. As we saw last week, it's a struggle to believe that, yeah, that God actually, what He's given to us, what He's provided for us is actually good. It's actually enough. The struggle to believe that the wisdom of God, God's salvation in Christ is actually better than, truer than our own wisdom and our own perspectives. The struggle to believe is really accompl- that Jesus has really accomplished everything for us on the cross. That when He died, it really did cover all the penalty for our sin. And when he was raised again, which is a real historic event, that it really was God saying, this is enough. It was God's stamp of approval on Jesus' death in our place. There's that struggle to believe, and and we constantly are faced with it. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 6 when he was asked, what must we be doing to be doing the work of God? What did he say? He said, the word, this is the work of God that you believe, that you believe in the one who was sent. And so this, when I say life of God is a life of faith, I'm talking one, yes, on a broader level, trusting God for all the things we can't understand and all the things he's not revealed answers to. But it's also recognizing that God has actually provided a way, a way of salvation, a way of forgiveness. It's believing that God loves you so much that he sent his only son. It's believing that 
It won't be your failures or shortcomings that get you in or keep you out. It's believing that life in Christ is far better than anything the world offers. It's believing that God is sovereign and is truly working things out for your good and His glory, even when everything around you seems to indicate the opposite. This is what God is calling Ahaz to. He's saying, do you trust in what I've promised? Now, the evidence will be, of course, in what he does or doesn't do. Look at verses 10 through 17. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will, Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, this is the Lord then, Hear then, O house of David, again a reference to Judah and King Ahaz, Is it too little for you to weary men? that you weary my God also. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Again, Isaiah speaking here as God's mouthpiece. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse uh, the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So God says to Ahaz, I want you to believe. I really, I want you to believe and I want you to trust in me. So I'm going to invite you to ask of me a sign. And you can make it anything. It doesn't matter. Make it anything you want. Because after all, you are talking to the living God. And Ahaz takes the super spiritual route and he says, Oh, I would never do that. That wouldn't be right. But this is actually, this is actually the height of hypocrisy. Ahaz says that not because of his great reverence for God, uh, not because uh, he doesn't want to offend God. He says that because he doesn't want to trust God. He knows that if he trusts God, that means he'll have to surrender control and defer to God's wisdom and plan. And he doesn't want that. What he wants more than anything else, Ahaz, is he wants to remain in control. And I love what one German uh, scholar, Otto Kaiser, says on this passage. He says, there are situations where outward piety and inward unbelief are identical. In other words, there, there are situations where we're doing the right thing, this, even the seemingly spiritual thing, is actually just uh, masking unbelief. You say, well, how does that work? Well, what it is, is it's, it's, that means it's less of a trust in God and more of a trust in some sort of formula that if I do good, I can guarantee good for myself. If I do good, then I'll have sort of God, uh, God's arm behind his back, and he's got to do good to me. See, the opposite of faith most often is not really unbelief. The opposite of faith is control. I want to control. I want to remain in control. Isaiah says in verse 13, referring to Ahaz as the house of David, he says, I see how this goes. Is it not enough to try the patience of human beings? But you've also got to try the patience of the living God by your false piety. Uh, Eugene Peterson has a translation of the Bible called the message. And I, I wouldn't use it for my regular Bible intake, but I do think there's some of the phrases in his interpretation that are really good. And I love the way he translates verse 13. 
He says, it's bad enough that you, this is God speaking, it's bad enough that you make people tired with your pious, timid hypocrisies, but now you're making God tired. Nevertheless, God determines to give Ahaz a sign. It's not a torrential storm. It's not a bunch of lightning bolts. It's not some uh, great star in the sky or anything like that, or even a pillar of fire. Look at verse 14. This is the sign. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now we read that and we say, what in the world is going on here? This is an amazing passage, but it's a very difficult one as well. We have to remember, we've talked about this, I don't know, many times before, but when we read these Old Testament passages, there are kind of two different levels or what scholars call reference by which to interpret these. And one one level or one reference, of course, is to the immediate historical situation. In this case, to Ahaz and the upcoming attack by the alliance of Syria and Israel, and Ahaz's struggles to believe, his fears, and the sign that God would give Ahaz to assure him that God is in control and has a plan to rescue Judah. So there is a very immediate historical interpretation here that we must not overlook. But there is another level, there's another referent here. Another level, another referent to a greater sign, a greater victory, a greater rescue than simply the rescue of Judah from this alliance. And this is how this passage, as you've heard me say a hundred times, a thousand times, as well as all the other pastors on staff, every aspect of Scripture, the whole story, every passage is some way pointing us, building a bridge to Jesus And here's how this passage does that. In the immediate context, the virgin who would conceive uh, could have been a loose reference to Mahar Shalal Hashbad, which was Isaiah's second son. Isaiah 8 tells us that uh, the boy's birth was connected to the fall of this great alliance between Israel and Syria. Actually, the message of uh, Mahar Shalal Hashbaz's life was indeed God with us. That was the message of his life. His mother wasn't a virgin, but... Some argue that the Hebrew word translated virgin could also mean young maiden, and in which case this would be an accurate understanding. But either way, while there's some immediate fulfillment of this prophecy that no one would deny, it's unmistakably clear as we look at the whole of Scripture that this is actually a reference to Jesus Christ. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, even Matthew Jesus' own disciple, the writer of the first gospel, understood it that way. Here's what he writes in Matthew 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then look at this. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, that's Isaiah, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. This is, a, this is an exact quote of Isaiah's prophetic word that we just read in Isaiah 7. So what Matthew is saying is that God is ultimately talking about Jesus when he makes this promise to Ahaz way back in the 900s B.C. Old Testament scholar Ray Ortland says this, Matthew saw in Isaiah's prophecy of the Emmanuel sign child, a picture of our ultimate salvation. 
we face a coalition of hostile powers far worse than Syria and Ephraim of old. We face the alliance of sin and death. They never go away, and we are no match for them. But at this ultimate level, remember those two references, at this ultimate level, the baby Jesus fulfills the truest meaning of Emmanuel, God with us. Now, God would overthrow this evil alliance of Israel, Syria, and ultimately rescue Judah. But more importantly, the one who would come would bring about the greatest rescue of all. With a nod to Ray Ortland, here's our final point this morning. Jesus came to deliver us from our greatest enemy, the seemingly unconquerable spiritual alliance of sin and death. So you say, well, is Isaiah chapter 7, is this, is this about what happened you know, hundreds of years before Christ, or is this about what's going on now? And the answer, of course, is what? Yes, right? It is about that, and yes, it has an immediate uh, application and reference, but it's also about the coming one. The one who would deliver us from our greatest enemy, the seemingly unconquerable spiritual alliance of sin and death. We talked about this last week. The reason that Jesus Christ came into the world, the reason that He came to earth, the reason that we celebrate Christmas at all was because He came to effectively and finally deal with the sin problem that every single one of us deals with. All of us deal with it. We saw last week, because of Adam and Eve's revolt, we are all born separated from God, estranged from God, enemies from the God who created us. And that has global and it has global consequences, from fires that consume entire neighborhoods, to storms that flood expansive cities, to tornadoes that sweep through, to stories of child abandonment and kidnapping and violence and murder and all of those things that permeate our news coverage but also to our own sickness and our own grief and our own stress and our own anxiety and our own fear. And the Scripture makes it clear that this chaos is caused by sin. The breaking of our relationship with the God who made us and our subsequent attempts to build our lives on other things, essentially created things, rather than the Creator. Nevertheless, Because God is merciful and loving, His grace will have the final say. His grace will triumph over our failures. In fact, God demonstrates throughout the Bible that He will make everything right that's wrong with the world. Everything that's wrong because of sin and rebellion and the curse, God will fully and completely restore. He will usher in complete and total shalom wholeness and peace. God will bring about peace through the person and work of a Redeemer, a Savior, the one that is foreshadowed and predicted all the way back in the book of Genesis. Now certainly, again, there's a cosmic dimension to this renewal. God's going to make this world, this very earth that we live in, He's going to make it new. But there's also application on a smaller scale, we might even say on a personal level, Again, certainly there's the global benefit of the gospel, but there's also the benefit to you and me personally. In Christ, God announces that He will deliver us from our own sin and our own brokenness. In Christ, God declares our freedom and our rescue from all the things that hold us captive, from the fears that you just can't seem to shake to 
the anxiety over what's going to happen next, to the conflict that plagues us now at every level. God, yeah, He's going to restore the whole world, but this is God's promise that He's going to free us from every other thing that ails us, even when we insist on having our way, even when we insist on rebelling, even when we demand our own autonomy, even when we believe we have it all figured out. God is going to forgive us and has forgiven us if we are in Christ. And all of this is meant to point us to the great glory and the great peace and the great shalom that will be in store for all those who trust in Christ. Our sin, your sin this morning, need not destroy you. In Christ, God with us, salvation is here. Let's pray. Father in heaven, will you help us this morning to believe? Our minds so quickly go to the things that we need to do. But Father, will you help us to believe and then recognize that out of that believing, out of that trust in you, out of our confidence in the gospel, then come worship and obedience and delight and peace. And Father, I pray that you would help us this morning to really take it in, to believe. I pray for that person who's here this morning who is just overwhelmed with grief. I pray that you would be his or her comfort. I pray that person who's here this morning who is just completely uneasy, not the least bit at rest, I pray this morning that you would be his or her peace. And I pray for that person who's here this morning who's just sort of trying to figure this stuff out, maybe investigating the claims of Christ, trying to figure out how he or she can, can just appease you or be right with you. I pray today, Lord, that you would be his or her salvation as you bring that person to saving faith. Will you help us this morning? Will you attend to us this morning in Christ's name? Amen.